Good afternoon, and thank you so much for being with us on this Tuesday. Coming up on the show, a workaround deal. That is what it is being called, talking about the Nexus application backlog. We'll find out more details of that deal and what it might look like for people renewing or getting Nexus cards in the near future. We're also getting an update from Avalanche Canada on a fatal avalanche near the city of Nelson. We'll talk to Avalanche Canada in the second hour of the program this morning. We are starting Starting, though, with some not too pleased elected officials in Delta saying that there needs to be a second overpass, a second approach to the replacement for the George Massey Tunnel. Many saying that this has been part of the discussion, the part, a uh, part of many discussions leading up to the point where we are now with that project. And we heard from Dylan Kruger earlier on today. He told Simi Sarah that their community and the regional planning has has all been based on having that second crossing, that second access point to the tunnel replacement. And he explained exactly why it is so important. Because you have the one exit coming out of Ladner, basically everything funnels on to Ladner Trunk Road, which funnels on to Highway 17A, which eventually funnels on to Highway 99. So you do get quite a bit of backup on Ladner Trunk Road. And if you're traveling southbound to the tunnel, you can actually see on the right-hand side today, a significant growth in the, that polygon development uh, in the Hampton, Hampton Cove area. That development is immediately adjacent to what would be, what we were hoping would be uh, the second exit. So now those folks are traveling all the way uh, through Ladner, uh, clogging up Ladner Trunk Road, trying to get onto the highway. That was Dylan Kruger with Delta Council speaking earlier today on Mornings with Simi. Well, we are joined now by Peter Millibar, the BC Liberal finance critic. Peter, thank you so much for being with us. Absolutely. Thanks for having me up. What are your thoughts on this? Clearly, some of the elected officials in Delta, I'm sure some of the residents as well, are scratching their heads over this, saying that if you're going to go ahead with a project of this scope, then that second access point is necessary, saying that it was part of the previous BC Liberal government's bridge project, which we know was scrapped. What are your thoughts on now being told or now learning that it's not really part of these plans, at least not in the near future? Well, nothing on this project really adds up over the last six years with the NDP. Um, you know, we had a we had a firm price of two point nine billion for the ten lane bridge replacement. Uh, we're now looking at at the tunnel to replace the same amount of travel lanes in busy times as you currently have. And all that aside, um, you know, we have a, a tunnel project that still doesn't even have its environmental uh, approvals yet. Uh, yet they're designing a Stevenson uh, interchange to not meet uh, if, if a bridge winds up having to be built because of environmental concerns. It's a major salmon uh, run area, obviously, in terms of feeding both the Thompson and, and the Fraser Rivers. And every plan up until very recently has shown uh, the Delta Exchange. So now that's getting scrapped from this project as well. And it's well over $4 billion in climbing, uh, even with the scaled back project. When we saw the original plan, though, and that plan, as we know, for the bridge, how important was it that there be that second overpass linking up? Uh, it would link up, I believe, uh, Highway 99 with, with 60th Avenue or linking up those roads and giving residents and commuters that, that second access point. Well, that's why, you know, the bridge was all about future growth and looking at, uh, you know, what was going to be happening in Ladner and in Delta, what was going to be happening uh, in Richmond, what would happen in terms of uh, having access for for high-speed transit to have dedicated lanes to go across to get down, uh, you know, south of the Fraser to 
to provide uh, high-speed transit into those areas as well. That was all future-looking. What we're seeing with this government plan now over the last six years is instead of a bridge actually being physically open today as we were talking, uh, they're still in the planning stage. They're still in the environmental assessment stage. And uh, instead of, of actually having a project that would be, as it was fully envisioned, looking at the future growth of what's going on in that area, uh, it's starting to be continually scaled back for, for more and more cost at the same time. And when we look at that as well, and, and you mentioned the environmental assessment, the fact that that hasn't been completed at this point, Again, would the overpass, do you think, come into play there in that it's not it's not in the plans to be built when this project goes ahead? I know there was some talk that perhaps it could be built in the future, and that's raising concerns as well because the cost would obviously be a lot more. Is there something that would make it, by, by not that it's being scaled back, by, but by not having that in the plans, is there a possibility that that's being done in a way to, to try and make sure that the environmental assessment comes back positive? Well, I'm not sure about that on, on that side of it. It also seems to be much more of a, of a fiscal uh, discussion right now in terms of uh, the government realizing that uh, the cost is ballooning uh, more and more. Uh, they're scaling back the project. That's uh, right out of the typical playbook when it comes to transportation uh, projects. We saw that with the Patella Bridge, uh, the replacement to replace an 80-year-old four-lane bridge with a four-lane bridge. Uh, they've dropped off the enhanced on and off ramps on, on the Surrey side of that project to try to keep the number lower and, and hoisted that cost if it's going to be done to the taxpayers of Surrey. Now we're seeing the same thing happen uh, with the Massey replacement in terms of uh, this overpass and, and uh, you know who will ultimately pay the price for it. Uh, they're probably hoping it'll be the local taxpayers when it shouldn't be. Uh, and on top of that, if you go and disturb uh, that construction area a second time after you get a new tunnel in place or a new bridge, uh, all you've done is prolong uh, the construction and traffic chaos that comes with construction instead of doing it all at the same time uh, to try to minimize that impact of what is already the worst bottleneck in, in British Columbia. How much sway do you think mayors have in that a letter has been sent to the to the provincial government, to the premier, to the transportation minister? It was sent in November from both the mayor of Delta, George Harvey, Mayor Malcolm Brody in Richmond, asking for this, supporting this to the province, saying how important this was for the community. I know Malcolm Brody's concern was also about hydro wires, but how how much sway or do mayors have any sway when making requests or putting support for certain parts of projects? Well, I think this uh, lays bare that the NDP's cancellation of the original bridge was nothing more than uh, pure and crass uh, politics, which has created a, an ever never ending uh, backlog of traffic jams uh, in the Massey area uh, because they predicated cancelling the bridge based on what the mayors were saying uh, at the time. Well, here we have mayors uh, in, in cohesion saying uh, that they would like to see this overpass, as it's always been envisioned, uh, part of the main project done and paid for by the, by the province at the same time. Um, so if the government walks away from the mayor saying that, uh, how do they justify cancelling the bridge when those, uh, some of those same mayors um, was what the basis of them cancelling the bridge in the first place was built on. And one of the other points from Councillor Dylan Kruger was the overpass at this point is estimated to cost around $40 million, which sounds like a lot of money, but when you put it in perspective of it's part of a now at least $4 billion project, it's not a huge amount of money. What are your thoughts on the cost? 
Well, it's not a huge amount of money. Uh, you know, uh, Councillor Kruger is uh, correct about that, especially when you're talking about a project that instead of $2.9 billion is now well over $4 billion. Um, dollars. But uh, there's also the lost costs and, and uh, the productivity costs and people sitting in further traffic delays. So, so let's walk this all the way through. You have a, a new uh, uh, a crossing built that is supposed to ease congestion. Let's say it actually accomplishes that and does ease congestion. What, uh, a year after it's open, we're going to start clogging things up again while well, there's a construction of an overpass happening just a couple kilometres past the crossing to the south? Uh, it simply defies logic why you would drop something like this, especially with the dollars involved, uh, when if you're going to have a construction zone, uh, make it a full construction zone, make the inconvenience for the traveller at the same time frame, and then have everything open at the same time instead of this piecemeal uh, continual construction area. All right, Peter Millibar, thank you so much for your time today. Appreciate it. Great, thank you. Anytime. Well, could there be some hope when it comes to easing that Nexus application backlog? We are told that Canada and the United States have reached what is being called a workaround deal on Nexus applications. Let's bring in Len Saunders, immigration lawyer at Blaine Immigration. Len, great to have you back on the show. Hi, Jill. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you as well. Uh, So not a lot of details on this, but the Globe and Mail reporting that the two countries have reached a workaround deal, and this is in the dispute over the Nexus system. Have you been hearing anything about this? Well, so I heard nothing until I saw this same news report this morning. I definitely think it's a step in the right direction, given that the Nexus program is still a disaster. But I hate to be a Debbie Downer. From what they've reported through the news, I honestly don't think it's going to help. The logistics seem to be impossible, what they're trying to propose here. And so from what we know so far, and again, not a ton of details, but what are they actually proposing as far as as making this kind of workaround deal? Well, so what they're saying is, let's say you're flying out the Vancouver airport. So you go and do your Nexus interview as a Canadian at the Nexus office, which I was at Vancouver airport a couple of weeks ago. It's all boarded up. It's closed. So they're going to reopen that, it looks like. You do the interview. You then hop on an airplane and then land in the U.S. and do a second interview with the Americans. But let's take me as an example. I flew to Kona in Hawaii on the Big Island at Christmas time. You land there. There's no office there. And for them to logistically set up an office in every single place where Canadians are flying to throughout the U.S., it seems to be almost counterproductive, the efforts, especially when you're going through U.S. Customs at Vancouver Airport. Why not just do it there? I can't imagine many Canadians, when they're flying to the U.S., are going to want to take time out of their vacation to find a Nexus office, who knows where, if it's at LAX or San Francisco Airport, if they set them up, to spend time to do an interview. So I think at least they're talking about it, Trudeau and Biden. But when you look at what has been announced or at least leaked, I don't think it's a it's a workaround solution, in my opinion. Yeah, it does seem a bit onerous, doesn't it? And and as it stands now, then for people, especially those who live close to the border, the other option is to go to Blaine or to go somewhere on the U.S. side of the border. Is that working out for people? Actually, it is. I was in the office yesterday. A high school friend of mine from Tawasson had some nexus issues. He picked me up in my office in Blaine. We drove down there, five minutes south of my office. 
it was busy. There was people in there. They were doing interviews. There was Canadians and Americans. You know, maybe they should just expand the offices closer to the border. They could set up, you know, a pop-up one maybe in Blaine, where I am at one of the, you know, closed mailbox facilities. They're all over town now. They all closed down after the border reopened. So, you know, it's it's difficult for me to understand where Biden and Trudeau are coming from because, number one, neither of them probably have Nexus cards, so they don't understand how the program works. Neither of them have probably ever been at interviews. You and I and probably most of your listeners have Nexus cards or understand how it works. So when I when I saw what they were proposing, at least they're talking about it, but I don't think it's a logistical solution trying to have Canadians go all around the U.S. wherever they land in whatever city to try to find one of these offices that they may happen to set up. And what is still the issue? Like you said, when you're flying to the States and you're flying out of YVR or other airports, you go through customs for the United States before you get onto the plane. So when you get there, you've already gone through. What is the issue with the, we're able to have that at YVR, but not the Nexus application office? Well, because under the Preclearance Act, which goes back three or four years, the Canadian government has allowed Americans to have guns at pre-flight clearance, which I personally don't agree with. As a Canadian who lives in the U.S., I think there's enough guns down here. You don't need them all going up to Canada. But what the Americans want is they want to be able to take those guns from pre-flight clearance, which is a secure area, into areas like the lobby of Vancouver Airport for Nexus interviews. I think that's completely unnecessary, but the Americans think otherwise. And until they are granted those, quote, protections of carrying firearms at Nexus offices wherever in Canada – they've refused to staff them. So why not just do the interview on the other side of customs if you're flying to the U.S.? I'm sure in secondary, in you know, on the other side, going through immigration, they could do the interview there. These are the logistics that, you know, the people running the program maybe are missing. I don't know. I'd love to be, you know, listening to these discussions and put my two cents in. I'm just happy I have a valid card right now, <laughs> and uh, I'm not at the back of the waiting line. Yeah. Yes. No, absolutely. I guess the issue with that could potentially be that to get to that point at the airport where you're going through U.S. customs, you've already gone by, through security and gone through all of those checks. You have to be traveling somewhere. It's not like you could just go and do that. Whereas at the Nexus office, you can just make an appointment and it's not linked to traveling. You're just going to the office. Well, exactly. And so this you know, leaked report or agreement from today says you have to go, you know, on your way flying, so you're going to have to book a flight to Seattle or wherever, go to the Nexus office at Vancouver Airport, be interviewed by a Canadian, go through U.S. security, I guess with no Nexus cards, now you're waiting for hours if there's long lineups, fly into Seattle, and then find out where they've set up one of these offices. It just, it doesn't seem like common sense, in my opinion. No, it uh, it doesn't. Now they are calling it a workaround, not a, a final solution, and that this is being done to speed up the application processing and to deal with that backlog. Is it, does that give you some hope that they're at least still working on it or working on some final solution? Well, absolutely. It took over a year to get to this point, right? There hasn't been Nexus interviews in Canada since before the pandemic, and when they reopened the offices in the U.S prior to uh, the end of 2021, so now we're 
you know, just over a year away, you know, there was no discussions at all. Both sides were kind of at a stalemate and were pointing fingers at each other, saying that both sides were holding up the program. So at least they're talking. So I'm not going to, you know, say that it's not going to help at all, but at least they're chatting and hopefully there'll be some kind of common sense and maybe the Americans will do interviews again without insisting on having their guns in Canada. Right. Are you concerned at all? I know before when we talked about this, and again, this does seem like a positive update and a positive step here, but are you still concerned that this program, like you said, politicians are are debating this, that have never had to deal with airport lineups. Are you concerned that the program is in jeopardy? Um, I don't think the program will be cancelled. You know, too many people want to be in the program. Um, you know, 9-11 created the Nexus program. Before that, it was PACE. So unless some kind of, you know, event happens where the program is no longer workable, it's just right now an inconvenience for people having to wait and, you know, patiently check online if their application is approved or when they can actually do their interview. So the program is functioning. It just has massive backlogs right now. So I think the program will stay in effect. It's just a matter of, you know, will they ever clean up this massive backlog? Right. I would imagine, too, if you're getting clients or people are asking you what's the best course of action, it would be uh, go to the Blaine office or go to an office in the States rather than waiting for them to figure this out on this side of the border? Oh, absolutely. And the thing is, flying costs a fortune right now. I can only imagine how much a flight costs from Vancouver to Seattle just to do an interview, just to fly down there. It's probably five or six hundred bucks. You look at a family of six like me, it costs $3,000 just to get your Nexus card. So, you know, these are the logistics that I don't think either government has worked out, but at least this is a step in the right direction, and they're talking. All right, that is true. Len, thank you so much. As always, great to chat with you today. Thanks, Jill. Talk to you soon. Well, this is a story in the United States, but it certainly is getting a lot of attention on this side of the border as well. A federal agency is considering a ban on gas stoves, saying that the gas stoves in our homes are a source of indoor pollution, and that indoor pollution has been linked to childhood asthma. In an interview with Bloomberg, a U.S. Consumer Product Safety Commissioner said that gas stove usage is a hidden hazard in homes and that any option is on the table, saying that products that can't be made safe can absolutely be banned. And this was having to do as well with a December 2022 study. It was in the International Journal of Environmental Research and Public Health. It found that indoor gas stove usage is associated with an increased risk of current asthma among children. And the study found that almost 13% of current childhood asthma in the United States is attributable to the use of a gas stove. So we wanted to talk more about this, and joining us to do that is Dr. Men Biagton, Vice President of Health Initiatives at the BC Lung Foundation. Thank you so much for taking some time with us. Thank you very much for having us, and good afternoon, Jill. Good afternoon. Is this something that's being looked at in Canada as well, or is this on the radar as far as pollution caused by gas stoves? Yeah, it has been looked on uh, in Canada as well, and there has been growing evidence that shows that the use of gas stoves can increase levels of pollutants inside a home. 
And is there so, a link? Sorry, is has it also been linked in Canada or the, the potential, yes, the concern about asthma? Yes, some of the initial studies have shown that um, people, especially the low-income group people, uh, usually are experiencing some kind of asthma, worsening of asthma symptoms among children. And then over a lifetime, they have already found out that they that these kids eventually will develop or people will develop asthma. Why would it be different than for low-income groups if it's if it's a stove that's causing it? it? Yeah, because it has something to do with the way they cook, the way the house is ventilated, how they use gas stoves uh, in everyday cooking, and so on and so forth, whether the house is ventilated. And most of those people living in, in low-income groups usually do not have this kind of ventilation or rain shoes or something like that. Uh, that can mitigate some of the uh, adverse effects of high levels of pollutants inside the home. Okay, interesting. So is it more than the ventilation and how a kitchen is designed or built or how a home is vented, more that also, than the stove yeah. itself? Well, it it just also the stove itself because even if the stove and 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 in that study that has just been released it shows that even when the uh, gas stove is off it's still leaking methane a small amount of methane and over the period of time if the house is not well ventilated then it can accumulate to high levels of uh, pollutants inside the home particularly nitrogen dioxide. Hmm. Is there a way that people are able to monitor that, or is it something like how we have a carbon monoxide a detector in yeah, our homes? There, yeah, there are some detectors or sensors that they can get, and they can use that. However, I don't think that a lot of people are aware of what nitrogen oxide is, or if nitrogen oxide is being produced inside a home or the other sources of nitrogen oxide. I know that we are so particularly aware about nitrogen oxide outside of the home, but it can infiltrate inside your home. And at the same time, you have other sources of nitrogen oxide or dioxide inside the home, just like, you know, particularly the use of gas stoves. And when we talk about these being linked to the rates of asthma in children, and again, this was a, a new, a pretty new study. It was in December mm-hmm. of 2022, again, in the United mm-hmm. States, saying 13% of current childhood asthma. Are, are children mm-hmm. more susceptible to this? Well, yes, they are susceptible. Young children are very susceptible to any anything, like particularly high levels of pollutants. Um, and over the period of time, according to the study, over periods of long-term exposure, it could lead to the development of asthma. And if these kids have asthma, current, uh, currently having asthma, this can short-term exposure to high levels of pollutants or particularly nitrogen dioxide could lead into worsening of asthma. And not only children with asthma, but also people with any respiratory conditions or with any heart disease. So there has been a growing evidence that has been um, found through several studies, previous studies, and this, these studies that has just been released confirmed previous findings. Yet, yes, there, is, there are health impacts associated with uh, nitrogen dioxide.
So uh, in the United States, when we see the headlines that there's this federal agency looking or considering a ban on gas stoves, do you think that's something that we should be looking at here as well? I think Health Canada is also looking at that, or our government is also starting to look at that and actually... um, Clean BC strategy is also considering not the ban, but also considering like our wood stove exchange program. We're eliminating the use of uh, gas fireplaces, gas wood stoves, if possible, as a heating source because of that. So I guess we are we are more aware of that compared to previous years, and I think because the scientists are sending the alarm that people are becoming aware that there is uh, considerable health impacts. And do we look at the differences when you're talking about fireplaces as well, then say mm-hmm. if we're comparing a gas fireplace to a wood-burning fireplace, do we look at the, mm-hmm. the differences on the potential negative health impacts there? Yes, we do, because if it is not properly uh, operating and if it's not the, the Okay, the gas stoves may be more dangerous than the uh, than the gas fireplace because most of these are uh, well, um, gas fireplaces are vented outside, right? Right. So to the outside, but most of the homes, I think, even in the United States or maybe even in in Canada, most of the homes do not have a uh, like the gas stoves are not vented outside, so therefore those emissions can accumulate uh, inside a home. Right, okay. And uh, I know you you mentioned ventilation and and in homes. Mm -hmm. Do we look at the difference then in, say, a a single-family home, a freestanding house, as compared to, say, a condo tower or a condo building that would have several units, each with its own gas stove? Well, yeah, that could be also dangerous because it can also accumulate within the building, you know that any one unit uh any any emissions coming from one unit can go can be uh can infiltrate other units as well and then aside from that if you look at that there are other kind of sources inside a home so aside from the gas stove plus you know the heating uh, the ventilation system available the cooking habits of people the number of people living inside a home then there could be like mitigate uh, these effects that you could observe really Right. So what advice then would you give uh, to people that maybe are seeing this story out of the United States and uh, are learning about the fact that there are potential health implications Mm -hmm. from gas stoves? What advice do you give to people that are living in a home with a gas stove? Well, if 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 possible and if they can afford to switch to an electric uh, stove, rather than a gas stove. And if this is not possible in the near future, they can start considering using some countertop um, induction burners and then making sure that they have a good range hoods, you know, that is vented outside. And the manner of cooking, let's say, for example, use mostly the back burners if possible, uh, and then with range hoods running, during the time that you're cooking and that is vented outside, then that can mitigate the uh, health impacts. 
Right. Because I'm just thinking about it. I don't know what the numbers are as far as how many homes mm-hmm. in BC would have gas stoves, but certainly yeah. restaurants have them. Uh, people love cooking on, on gas stoves and they are really popular. I, I know that a lot of times people say it's uh, using gas stoves, it results to better cooking, uh, especially, you know, but it's just like a lot of these people do not uh, are not aware of the hidden danger of using gas stoves. And now that it's out in the open, and I think people are talking about that, about this now, and we are discussing this now, then that will create a, a lot of awareness and people can consider switching to uh, electric appliances. All right, uh, Dr. Biagton, thank you so much for joining us and for talking uh, about this today. appreciate uh, you uh, joining us with that information. My pleasure. Earlier in the show, we were talking with one of the senior forecasters at Avalanche Canada and talking about the conditions in many parts of BC, the snowpack with very weak layers and conditions that are very dangerous and pointing out even in areas where people who are very knowledgeable and skilled in being in those types of conditioned conditions are finding that they are extremely dangerous. We are talking about this today because of a fatal avalanche that happened near Caslow. And joining us now to talk a bit more about how that unfolded is Mark Jennings-Bates, Caslow Search and Rescue Manager. Thank you so much for being with us this afternoon. Hello, Jill. It's my pleasure to be with you. Uh, well, I wish it was on a on a much lighter topic and talking about something happier, but uh, this is uh, such a sad day to learn about the loss of the uh, off-duty police officer in Nelson. Uh, we know that another uh, off-duty officer is in critical condition. Can you tell us a little bit about what happened and what your team was called to? Certainly. Um, at approximately 12.15 on Monday, shortly after lunch, we got the alert from the emergency command center, the coordination center in Victoria, that there was an avalanche um, with two victims in the avalanche. And so we very quickly spooled up operations. 18 of our members volunteered for the deployment and uh, myself and two management colleagues very quickly started putting the logistics and, and planning together. Um, so it was a, a very fluid, very dynamic and rapid event, given the fact that we only had a few hours of daylight to effect a, a successful rescue. So, uh, yeah, very busy time for several hours yesterday. And when you get ready to go into an area like that and you know there's been an avalanche, what kind of danger are you in and your team members in going in there not really knowing what's happened? It's a very, a very good question, Jill. So one of the pivotal things that we need to do and are required to do is to ensure that it is safe to go and actually conduct the, the efforts that we need to do. And so the very first uh, few people that go up in the helicopter are aval- avalanche technicians who can assess the scene, assess the danger, and give us the green light to be able to uh, start to commence operations. So really everybody is getting ready to move to the mountain, but we don't get that green light until everybody knows it's safe enough to do so. 
And in this scenario, I understand from hearing from uh, the mayor as well as uh, I believe it was the police chief in Nelson uh, that uh, saying that they were thankful to some of the other people. There were there were members of the public who were there and they, they jumped into action right away to help the two men who got caught up in the avalanche. When you know there are more people in the area, does that make it even more more challenging? Uh, it, it actually can be of tremendous assistance, and it was yesterday. So the the secondary group that were unassociated but were involved in rescue initially actually had uh, cell phone communications. So we were able to get some on-scene uh, understanding of what was happening directly from one of the people there. And uh, And quite frankly, it is unusual at that time of day for us to be able to successfully execute any kind of a, a rescue with the daylight hours. But as soon as we were made very much aware of the fact that one person was still alive, uh, it became a very fast operation to get that person to the critical care that they needed. Hmm. And that must have just been uh, so stressful, though, as well for the people there, as well as members of your team, like you said, not knowing exactly what was happening and dealing, literally dealing with that, running up against the clock. Uh, Exactly. And I think even though we're all volunteers, everybody is very well trained in their own tasks. And so uh, there was nobody who wasn't during the day. They were ready to go to the next phase of the operation. So, yes, I think uh, probably afterwards is the time we all start and think about the gravity of the situation. But at the time, everybody's extremely professional and doing what they need to do to affect the outcome. Uh, How would you describe the size of the avalanche itself? Uh, the, the avalanche was described by the, uh, some of the, the rescue techs that we put on the mountain as a 2.5, so in between a 2 and a 3, and that's getting close to being able to bury a, a building or a car, uh, a small building or a car. So it's the, the consequences for a, a body in that avalanche are, are very severe, and, and the injuries that the officer sustained who survived are uh, certainly um, reactive to the conditions that he went through. There was a lot of avalanche debris and trees that he hit. Uh, in that slide. So very traumatic injuries. And do you know when the members of the public were there and when your members got there, was, was the officer coherent? Was he, was he, what, or what condition was he in when, when that kind of, when the rescue was, was actually taking place? Uh, he was very sick, but he was still talking. Uh, and so we were able to communicate uh, with the public initially and, and hear that he was talking. And then once we're on the mountain, he was talking all the way through the uh, the rescue. So uh, he was conscious and able to communicate with us, but uh, his, his situation was deteriorating rapidly with the cold weather. And I know that this is uh, any time, unfortunately, when something like this happens, it is always a reminder about being avalanche ready and making sure that uh, you have everything you need to be as safe as possible. Do you know if these these two gentlemen were carrying the proper gear or were prepared for this? Yes, all indications are that they were. Obviously, once you've been through an avalanche like that, there's a lot of kit that sort of disappears. Uh, but they did have avalanche transceivers, which would mean that they had the other equipment that were required and that they had the experience to be in the backcountry. Unfortunately, because both were caught in the avalanche, they were unable to self-rescue. But yes, they did have the, uh, the transceivers and necessary equipment. Right. So what, do you know, was it that equipment that, that alerted people or was it that there happened to be this other group of people there that witnessed it and they were the ones that were able to call for help? Yes, in natural fact, it was the surviving police officer who was able to alert them by waving his arms, um, which was very fortunate. So he, nobody was aware that there was an avalanche until somebody saw him waving his arms.
Hmm. And just, and I understand too from officials, like you said, uh, he is in hospital. He's got a lot of broken bones, but uh, is uh, and is listed in critical condition. But you know, talking and, and able to communicate with people. Uh, what else do you take away from this? As far as like you said, you kind of get caught up in the rescue, and that's what you and the other members of the team are doing. But that's it's got to be just so much adrenaline, and then and then dealing with the reality of what's happened. Yeah, that's correct. And, and thankfully, again, we're trained for that and we're used to that. But there is a process now that the, the team will go through and has started going through. So we always review what we had done and what we could maybe do to improve next time around. And then there's also the issue of, uh, of crisis management. So there'll be a, a team meeting with everybody involved at something with some uh, clinical support just to make sure that we can deal with what everybody was uh, witnessing when they were on the mountain. So that's part of our, uh, our process after we've done an operation like this. And are there concerns that because of the avalanche conditions or the snowpack conditions with those weak layers, like Avalanche Canada was saying, that there are very uh, unstable uh, places where people maybe in the past have gone and it's been no problem, but they are extremely unstable this year. Uh, Are you concerned that there could potentially be more fatalities, more avalanches? It's definitely a concern, but at the same time, the BC backcountry is there for us to enjoy. I think it is a a matter of being prepared. And sometimes in the worst conditions, it's a go or no go condition uh, situation. But in actual fact, with the right information from uh, resources like avalanchecanada.ca and with the equipment and training, you can still find safe terrain. So a lot of it has to do with preparation and terrain selection when you're out in uh, in the mountains. All right. Uh, Mark Jennings-Bates, thank you so much. I know it's been a very, very busy and uh, stressful time, but thank you so much for making the time for us today. It's our pleasure. Thank you.